Hi, welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. I'm going to be chatting to a wide variety of people on here. They might be well-known figures, they might be people who can give us an inside track on the story of the week, or indeed people who have their own story to tell. The main thing is that whoever is on the other side of the mic, I'll ask them the questions I think you'll want answered. And because we always want to go the extra mile, we will also try to get a little bit more from our guests. Each week we'll bring a list of 20 upfront questions, put them into a random order and ask our guests to pick a number so they won't know which questions are coming up and neither will I. This week we wanted to get an insight into what it's like to be a migrant in Ireland while tensions around accommodating refugees are running so high. So today my guest is Ruben Hambacacheri. He came here to seek asylum in 2006. After years in direct provision, he was granted leave to remain in 2013 and became an Irish citizen in 2014. He now works with migrants in the Culture Migrant Centre in Navan. And he agreed to kick off with a random question. Okay, Ruben, you are very welcome to the Upfront podcast. Thanks for uh, being our guest. Let's just kick off with one of the 20 questions. Uh, give uh-huh. us a number from 1 to 20. 7. Number 7 is, tell me one regret you have in life. Oh, <laughs> I have never thought about it, but I think now as I, as I get older, I, I, I have a regret of not getting my education, like that level education at a younger age, because I only completed my master's degree when I was 42. I regret not getting that at an earlier age, and I think that would have really shaped uh, how my life was going to go, and possibly I would have not have had to leave the continent of Africa if I had had my third level qualification at an earlier age. Um, and of course you did ultimately, as you say, uh, go back to college here in recent years. But you know, let's, let's park that because I want to get to that uh, in, in the timeline of your story and take us right back, if you don't mind, uh-huh. to, um, to your earliest days in Zimbabwe. My earliest days in Zimbabwe. You've been with a child or is it well, a young Well, yeah, like what, what was your background like? What, what, what kind of a family did you grow up in? All right, my dad was a, he was a buyer for a mining company, so he would buy the, the products that they use and the machinery that they use in the mining company. So we lived in a lot of mining towns. I was fortunate enough to go to boarding school because it was a privilege. It was considered as a privilege to go to boarding school. So I went to boarding school. I'm the firstborn of four. Uh, we had opportunities that other young people our age didn't have because my, my dad was well-placed within the community and uh, we had the exposure uh, to, to learn, uh, uh, especially the English language, and get a good command of it because of the schools that we went to. And that, I think, it, it has helped me up to where I am now. And uh, also, we, I played sports. I was a rugby player uh, right up to the national level at some point. And up to national, you you were at the, on the national squad, or yeah, when under nineteens, yeah, that was back in nineteen something, well, ninety what, ninety two. So back then, yeah, yeah. So I I, I was on the B side, not the national, oh, like okay. on the B side. But uh, I, hey, I, got, I I got I got the colors, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. So I that actually got me the opportunity to to play against Trinity College because Trinity College came over to Ireland to play against the school that I was in. That's uh, was my first knowledge of Ireland and Dublin. And I always wanted to go to Trinity College when I came to Ireland. But I, I didn't make it, but I made my wife go there. <laughs> so my wife got a, <laughs> a degree in Trinity College in intellectual disability nursing. So 
she has done it for the family. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So talk to me then. You ended up in business in in, in Zimbabwe. Yes. Yeah, so I I ended up. I I worked my first years in uh, my young as a young man. I worked for a clothing retail outlet called Edgest, and it's one of the biggest retail outlets in uh, Southern Africa. So I I was a section manager in that, and I I I always wanted to be self-employed. So at some point, I got frustrated by the, 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 the little money that they were paying us. And then I went out to set up my own business. It was in uh, uh, mobile phones and uh, computer consumables, the likes of the printers, hard drives, and anything uh, containing uh, 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 computers at the time. And so the business grew. By the time that I left, I, I was well known. I would consider myself a household name for the, the local community that I, I was involved with. And that was successful. And I, I raised uh, some money. I actually raised money to get married and to have a wedding and also to, to sponsor myself to go and live in South Africa for some time before I came over to Ireland. So I would have considered myself at the time that, that my business was successful enough, yeah. Okay, yeah. So you were flying really uh, professionally, and, and but there was a problem. Yes, I, I, I had a big mouth at the time as well. I think this was odd to me. I was very vocal as a young person and I always went, I was interested in politics and I, I got involved with an opposition party then. It was the Democratic Movement Party, uh, which was the biggest opposition party back in the 90s and right through into the early 2000s in Zimbabwe. And I was involved. Uh, I was, I wouldn't say very closely to the party, but I was, uh, I, I had affiliations with the party and I got involved in their meetings and we spoke out against the ruling party and it was not a very uh, welcome uh, way of approach according to the ruling party. They didn't like us commenting on certain things. Well, this was, of course, the time of the Mugabe regime. It was, yeah. So it was, we, you were targeted once you started speaking out about certain things and depending on how vocal you are and how much of an influence you had, so I, I, when I left my work, I, I joined a, a, a local businessman's cooperative and I was one of the leaders within that cooperative. So I'd, I had some influence and people listened to me. So that really didn't work out to my favor because they knew I had some influence and they set out to, to attack me. And I, I was attacked once physically. And then I was just like, I, I don't need to to be a statistic before I realized that I have to move on from, from this. And then I left for South Africa. Okay. So you, 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 you had good reason to fear for your, for your life or for your, for your well-being. Yes, I did. So I left at that, at that time as well, I was now married and I left with my wife. How did you end up then? What, what, what are you, we talking about now? That's uh 2005. Yeah. 2005. Okay, so it was a year after that that you decided to head to Ireland. What, what, sure. where, what was behind that decision? Well, my wife left to, to so 2005, we were supposed to leave together to come to Ireland with my wife. So my wife left that time. At that time, she was pregnant as well. So I had a very strong reason to come here. I had a wife and a child in another country, and I, we're only beginning life as well. So there was that strong desire that I want to be with my family. And I also want to get to a place where I could, I could be safe. Why Ireland, though, in particular? At, at the time of travel, really, we, we, didn't have, we, we didn't have a choice on why Ireland. It was where the people who were moving us, the people who were helping us to get out, where the, the documents that they could get ready for you, 
And then I would say within me, I was looking for an English-speaking country because I, I wanted a language that I would get uh, to the country and be able to communicate and most struggle with communication. Yeah. yeah. And you were in direct provision. What was that like? Well, it, it was disempowering, right? I mean, like you, at the time, uh, asylum seekers were not allowed to work and it was challenging because you are... Uh, you're arriving in a country, you're seeking protection, and you're hoping that you're beginning to build your life, and then you find yourself in the receiving. Uh, and and I, the one thing that I had available to me in direct provision was time. So I had time to read and time to get involved with other groups that were working in supporting asylum seekers at the time. So I got involved with those because I wanted to put my time to good use, and I got involved in trying to understand what is happening and what is because I had a sociology background as well, so I understood I understood oppression and how to challenge oppression. So I was, in my view, this asylum system at that time. What I mean, even up to now, it's an oppressive system. So I wanted to challenge that oppressive system, and then I got involved in uh, uh, different groups at the time that were working with asylum seekers, and I went up to the level of volunteering with the Irish Refugee Council, and I, I had more information and knowledge and more contacts. And that was sort of helped to build me up to the person that I've become in Ireland today. So if you arrived in 06, your wife had been here a year already, and you didn't get leave to remain until 2013. So that was a long time in that system. It was. Like what does that do to you? When you were coming from a position where you've run your own business, you were you were a big noise in, in your you know your home country. And, and to be in that sort of a scenario then, queuing up for food? Yeah. I mean, you begin to question yourself, you second guess yourself, like, was this the right choice to make? Could I actually go back? And if I had to go back, where do I start from? But you know, now I was not thinking for myself alone. I had a child there. So I had to think about it. What am I going to do? And uh, I mean, can I go back with the family and start afresh? And if I'm going back, what am I going back to? Because I mean, I had disposed of everything that I had to, to make the move. So it, there was very little to go back to. So I, I just hunkered in. I mean, like a lot of people went back. They went back to their countries of origin. Some people even had mental health breakdown in the system. But I met uh, good people that were willing to support me on my journey. And I'm grateful that uh, those people were there to keep me sane during the time and to support me as I went through the process together with my family. Okay, I want to bring us up to date now with what's been happening, uh, because obviously there has been a lot happening um, uh, with regard to migrants and this community and uh, all, all this other uh, issues around it. Can I maybe just before we do that as a breaker, uh, I might try another one of the random questions with you, Ruben, if you don't mind. Do you want to give me another number between one and 20? Three. Three, okay. Three is what personality trait do you most admire? I, I, I think I just I love a calm collective personality and uh, a thinker. I, I think I, I would say I would love, uh, I, I like seeing thinkers and listening to thinkers and people who are calm and collected. Yeah. Uh, like yourself. I don't know if I could be described uh, that way. Would you say? <laughs> I don't okay. know if I could be described uh, that way at all. <laughs> okay. So as I say, let's go right up to date now and just, if I can just ask you the most general of questions, what is it like to be a person of colour, to be black as you are, living uh, in Ireland today? What, what does that feel like right now? Uh, it's scary. It's scary because I, I, like I said, I have children. 
born here and this is their home. And uh, I have many issues to worry about every day. And then I just gone away on holiday. I came back to Ireland on Saturday. I was away for three weeks and I came back on Saturday and I arrived into this situation and I was surprised. I knew some of this was going to happen, but I didn't expect it to escalate this quick. And uh, I, I, I'm afraid for myself and I'm afraid for my children and for my community. Because when I walk out today, even if I walk out of this room now, I don't know who is with me out there. Before I did, now I am surprised to see that some of the people that I thought were friends or were allies are standing with people who are protesting against migrants. So that is worrying for me. And when you say that, are you, are you talking about individuals, people you actually know? Yes. Who you believed were on your side, basically. Yes, yeah. So I'm surprised that they... And they're attending some of these protests. Sure. So that is, that is worrying. Yeah, so I'll be like, okay, I thought, uh, I thought you guys knew me and knew my community. Then if you're going to be saying we don't want... They, they're, not, they're not referring to me, but they're referring to my community. So when you're saying you don't want... Uh, migrants, you, it, it literally means you don't want me as well. So there's no way you can say you, you don't want the person that has just arrived, but you want me. You can't separate the two. We are migrants. We are just migrants, all of us. And that's how we see ourselves. So if you're saying migrants out, you're also saying migrants out to me. So that's worrying. Uh, have you had these conversations with individuals who have attended protests? Oh, yes. I, I had I had a difficult, it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have with a friend. Or a person you know, like, you'll be like, oh, I noticed that you have been commenting on social media about this and you have been attending some of these meetings. What is it for you there? And they were like, oh, no, we are really worried that there's a lot of uh, young men that are coming into the country and they are not vetted and we don't know what they're going to do to people around. And they were like, oh, okay. So if they were young women, would it make a difference? And they'll be like, uh, maybe. And then you'll be like, okay, so what is it about young men? I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to go to that uh, uh, gender discriminating of uh, young men that are arriving in Ireland. I, I, it's worrying for me as a man. And also I'm raising a young man, so I'm worried for my young men as well. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where you'll be like, okay, if I was out there and I was the refugee today in the center that these people are coming to and they don't know me, would they actually have this conversation we are having with me? It would be negative, I would imagine. But because they know me, they are giving me some respect and their time. So I, I'm worried about that. Like, what is the person who is arriving today in Ireland thinking about the society? I think it's really, it's really worrying. And like, I, I think we've all been watching those protests. Actually, some of them happened while you were out of the country, obviously. Now, if you, you were away for those three weeks, um, Ruben, but... The kind of um, things that are being said over loud hailers at those protests uh, seem to me to be new. I seem to have be things that might not have been said over loud hailers a few months ago, even. Yeah. Is, is that your sense? Yeah, it's my sense. They, they are making uh, accusations or making statements that are, are they, they're, they're groundless. Like, I mean, if we have young men arriving in, in Europe, it doesn't mean they're going to rape the women in Europe. I mean, it's, it's an assumption and it's a stereotype. It has not happened anyway. And unfortunately, there are people who are willing to feed off that kind of uh, uh, a conversation, those kind of conversations, and they are going with that. But I think we have a crisis of leadership in Ireland at the moment and how to respond to the issues. 
rather than allowing the far-right movement and the groups that are going about scapegoating the migrants, I think people should look inside and say, where have things gone wrong in the past that has brought us to where we are today, especially housing, health, and all the cuts. It's biting everyone. And right now, migrants are the ones who are feeling the brunt of this because we are looked at as the ones who are taking away. But like I'm saying now, I am a professional somebody. My wife is on the, in a hospital floor right now attending to patients. And I look at it now and it's like, she spent four years in college. She's now serving the community. And that same, same community is castigating her because when they say migrants out, they're also referring to her. And she's taking care of someone's parent who is not able to do or have the same skills to look after their own parent in a hospital. So that alone, it's, it's, it's disheartening. It's not everyone in Ireland, but some members of that community are saying, you need to get out. It's, it's disheartening. Is there any way for you to have a sense of how widespread this anti-migrant sentiment has become? Is it that we are amplifying it, that we're seeing the protests so they're getting a lot of attention and that the majority of people actually wouldn't subscribe to those views? Or like, what, what is your sense of that, Ruben? I would say it's just a very small percentage. We might not be able to gauge the exact sense of how many they are, but I think they are very small. They are a very small group of people. But what social media is doing is running away with the wrong rhetoric and a lot of people are feeding off that. Okay, what should the government be doing now at this moment in time where we see these protests, where we see, as you say, people you know that you thought were allies, you know, finding this, you know, you're seeing them at these protests. What, what needs to be done to, to, to address this now? It's an ongoing process. It's not a once-off. There is no magic wand to this. I wish I had a magic wand for this to all go away. But I think a lot of people, Irish people, want to help. I think we can, we can tap into that energy and that positive, uh, welcoming attitude that Irish people have and speak to the people that are willing to listen. There are people who have set up different uh, welcoming groups in different towns and cities. Uh, and those groups, I think they need to be supported. And they need, some of them will need funding the government should fund or support the work where people are, are willing to engage within communities locally and then also look at, in the long run, what, is the, what are they doing about the national plan against racism? Because in the long term, there should be policies to address such things because this is not going to go away. This is not new. It has been happening in small bouts, but it's increasing now. But it's not going to go away. I don't think this will be the end of it but we need to develop communication strategies from community, local community level right up to national level where people know that we are agreeing on something as a society. Do you think, and I, I, I leave it at this, do you think that people in leadership positions like TDs, public representatives, councillors, all the way up to, to ministers and, and the most senior politicians, do you think they're saying enough about this, that they're doing enough about this at this moment? I think they're saying what they can say, given the tools that they have to work against what is happening. What is happening is that we don't have tools to work against this. So if, if we had a legal something to say, if someone does this, this is what is going to happen to them, that would deter some people. Some of them are opportunists, really. It would deter them. But right now, I think the TDs and the local government officials, they're using what they know, what is available to them. And most of it is humanity. How would I respond to this as a human being? 
So that is what is happening. But I think if we're equipped with a policy document and the policy that we know, if I go into a place and this is what is happening to me, the guards are going to respond this way. I would have the confidence to challenge some of the things that are happening. Okay. 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 I'm going to finish up, uh, Ruben, with one last, uh, one last of one of my random questions. Do you want to pick one more number for me? 18. Okay. Number 18 says, would you agree that you should never meet your heroes? No, I wouldn't agree. I have to meet my heroes because if they inspire me, and <laughs> I should at some point uh, meet with them. <laughs> have but, you met a hero of yours that, that lived up to? Yeah, well, uh, I would say Nelson Mandela. I didn't meet him in close contact, but I met him from a distance. I think for me, he was a hero and he delivered to right from what he had said you would do. He did for the South African nation. Yeah, to some extent he did anyway, in my view. Uh, okay, Ruben, many, many thanks for that. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Katie. And that was Ruben Hambacacheri. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published and get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear features. On Twitter, we're at RT Upfront or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000. Talk to you next week.